Hello, I'm Andrew Scrivani. And I'm Chef John. Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Chef John Podcast. Chef John, how's it going? Good, Andrew. How you doing? Well, I wanted to welcome you to the leftover episode. Oh, yeah. I'm still full and getting fuller. Uh, I'm stuffed. See what I did there? I did. <laughs> you turkey. <laughs> Remember when that was an insult? Yeah, jive turkey. Jimmy Walker days. Back in our innocent days when, uh, man, those, call someone a turkey. Those are fighting words. Yes. Now people are like, thank you. I do identify as turkey. <laughs> Be careful now. Be careful. That's fine. All right. Thank you all for spending your post-Thanksgiving food coma recovery period with us. You've just been stuffed like your turkeys, or if you don't, your vegan turkey. You have definitely taken in some sides and some desserts and maybe imbibed a little bit, but um, we hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving. Well, you know, those who celebrate Thanksgiving anyway. And by the way, we can't blame the tryptophan. People love, oh, it's that stuff in the turkey makes y'all logy and sedated. It's Apparently, it's like trace amounts that you really shouldn't affect you. So all these years, we've all been using that as an excuse. And really, we just overate and we're tired and drank too much. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially the drank too much part, you know? That's actually what I meant. <laughs> yeah. I ate some turkey. I had some mashed potatoes, but I also had three bottles of wine. So, you know. I agree. And it's hard to, you know, motivate yourself to do much, which leads me into a little bit of a, a segue, which I believe is redundant. You know what doesn't require a lot of effort? You could just sit your lazy butt on your couch and do find us on social media. Oh, that's true. Right. You can do that. You tell our fine fans how they can. I don't want to spoil the ending, but how they can get in touch with us and leave a comment and hopefully a five-star rating. Yes, of course. And these ratings and reviews help us and they help the podcast. So thanks for taking the time to do that. We really encourage you to interact with us any way you can. And of course, you could do that on Twitter and Instagram at Chef John Pod. And you can also find us at our website at chefjohnpod.com. Is that right? No, I said that wrong. The chefjohnpodcast.com. Oh, wow, man, this tryptophan has really gotten me today. If you get on our website, of course, if you can find it, because I don't really know where it is. John usually doesn't know where it is, but he's been saving me today. You can leave us a message. You can find our phone number there and leave us a voicemail, and we may put it on a future show. In fact, we probably will. We get so few. We probably put you on there if you get through. And if there was ever one task you can complete completely hungover, this is the task. I'm feeling a little brain fog. I'm not used to eating like that, John. I had a great Thanksgiving. I ate all my favorite stuff and I'm feeling it today. Maybe too many mini marshmallows. Is that it? You don't have to go there, John. <laughs> we already did that. If you need to catch up on your uh, Chef John podcast, go back and listen to last year's <laughs> Thanksgiving episode where we, well, I'll use the polite term. I critiqued Andrew's gratuitous use of mini marshmallows on a certain side dish. Any word that ends in a Q-U-E, it's a very nice way of saying that he roasted my behind. Pardon our French. Yes. All right. Give us a comment. Give us a five-star review. And you don't even have to move to do it. You can just sort of roll over towards your laptop, fire it up, give us a rating review, and then go back to your nap. Yeah, definitely. And make sure you type everything in right before you go back to sleep. Yes. All right. Moving along, as I like to say. Moving along. Our first segment of The Leftover Show, and it is your favorite thing, voicemails. Well, really, the poll is my favorite thing, but voicemail is a close second. That's true. Either way, we're having voicemails in The Leftover Show. And this one is Deb Perry 
calling from Blaine, Minnesota. So let's hear what Deb has to say. Please leave a message after the tone. This is Deb Perry calling from Blaine, Minnesota, which is a northern suburb of the great Minneapolis. I am calling to tell you that I love your podcast, and I wanted to share with you what my pet peeve is, and that is people who stand in the grocery store and pick up each ear of corn and start to pull down the husks to look at the kernels. And then they don't like what they see, so they think there's something better, so they just toss it back into the pile and go for another one. And this goes on and on and on. Really? Is one ear of corn going to be that different from the other? Just pick up six and move along. That's what I say. Anyway, thanks so much for your podcast and your humor. It brightens my day. Have a good week. Bye. So, John, what's really great about modern farming here in the U.S. is that you can pretty much get corn any time of year. Now, we're a little bit past corn season, but, John, does Deb have a point? With all due respect, Ms. Perry, I got bad news for you. Uh-oh. You could not be more wrong. Oh! Chef John does not abide by any kind of corn scorn, especially when it comes to unshucked or partially shucked ears of corn in the pile at the store. If you're just peeling back a few leaves, uh, just to so you can see the top of the ear, to see if it's filled out, because if you peel it back the first couple inches and you see there's some missing kernels, you want to keep moving. Maybe try whatever the next vegetable down the row is, because this is not going to be a good piece of corn. If you peel it back and it's fully kerneled, to use a technical term, then I think you're good to go. Now, also, and I'm a corn husk peeler. Is it the husk? That's the leaves or the husk? Yes, the husk. That's right. I do peel it back when I shop for corn because I don't want to get partially filled out corn. God forbid I get moldy corn and then what happens? So I will take a peek. Now, I'm going to tell you, Deb, I don't know which ham-handed people you've been watching, but I don't think it's that hard to peel a couple uh, leaves back and look at the ear without touching the actual corn itself. So if someone's in there and they're just like rubbing the end of the corn, like that's inappropriate. (laughs) I would have a problem with that. But if you just peel a leaf back and you peek and then you put the leaf back, put it back where it was, who gets hurt? Who cares? And by the way, the people handling the corn may or may not have as clean hands as any random customer in the store. So people have been touching that corn seven, eight times by the time it got to you, Deb. So just relax about the extra one person at the store that peeled the leaf back before you bought it. John, I got to come to Deb's rescue here. Okay, go ahead. They do take up a lot of time at the corn pile, number one. Okay, so I'm down with the get your six ears and move along. I'm with that. The other thing is, is the people peeking at the corn akin to sniffing the cork when you order a bottle of wine? Not at all. First of all, sniffing the cork is ridiculous. It serves no purpose. (laughs) I assume the waiter poured you a sip and you tasted it. If that's no good, what are you sniffing the cork for? To avoid like, oh my God, this cork smells terrible. I'm not even going to sample this wine. So I never understood the sniffing the cork. I think it's an inside joke with sommeliers to just like, hey, see if we can get them to sniff the cork. (laughs) It's totally different because the corn, it can look buxom and full, fully filled out and nice and fat and luscious in that pile. But I've grabbed one of those ears before and I've pulled back the shuck and boom, missing kernels, disformed kernels, misformed kernels, both. You can have both. 
And then sometimes it just looks kind of dry, but I have no problem peeking at corn. And by the way, your thing where like, you don't want to wait for people to peek at the corn. Yes. This is a problem with your market. If they have their corn set up where only one person at a time can buy it, you got to start shopping at a new produce place because let's get that thing in a square bin in the middle of the floor. I want to be able to come at a pile of corn from any direction. All right. Grocery store design. Next up on the Chef John podcast. You ever hear that saying there's 360 ways to look at an elephant? Well, you have now. There should be at least four ways to get into a bin of corn, unless you're just totally uh, holding people up on purpose because you're psycho. Or like I said, you're just feeling it too much. You're not just looking. You're rubbing the corn. I think part of this was COVID though, John. I think people were afraid to get next to one another at the corn bin. So like we waited for the next person and then they were there feeling up all the corn. But I do think you answered Deb's questions. Is one corn that different from the next? Yes. The answer is yes. Do we need to take up that much time? And the answer is get over it. So I do think that we almost touched on a Chef John going crazy. We we got really close to a driving Chef John crazy on this. So we almost did double duty. People that don't check the years of corner of the market it makes me crazy. How you just buy that stuff without looking at it? <laughs> but I want to thank Deb for her voicemail. I'm sorry that Chef John had to take you down a notch, but I'm with you, Deb. Just get it over with. I mean, what's next? Going on dates with people we haven't seen yet? I mean, come on. <laughs> So anyway, I'm just going to finish up that segment with a uh, blind date analogy. Those are never a good idea. So do not, under any circumstances, go on a blind date with an ear of corn. Swipe left. <laughs> Swipe left. Anyway, Dab, sorry. We love the question. Thank you for uh, leaving us a voicemail. Enjoy your time in uh, this uh, suburban area of Minnesota. Blaine, Minnesota, to be exact. But please, have mercy on us corn peepers. We are people too. All right, John. Hot or cold? One of the best things about leftovers after Thanksgiving is determining whether or not you need to reheat them, right? You can go microwave, you can go stovetop, stick it back in the oven, or you could just eat it cold. Sure. We're going to talk about two of the staples of Thanksgiving dinner. Is one turkey? The first one is turkey. We'll save the second one because you know it's going to be a big surprise and it won't involve small marshmallows. Are you a hot turkey leftover guy or a cold turkey leftover guy? Well, never let it be said I could just give a simple answer when I could give a more complicated answer. Well, that's why we do a podcast, John. Exactly. That's why these aren't just 10 minutes. <laughs> I will tell you, it all depends on the cut. White meat, give me cold turkey all day. Slice it thin, sandwich, salad. I'll go spring water on your butt and just roll that thing up with a little peanut sauce. So cold turkey, absolutely if it's uh, the white meat. Cold thigh and leg meat, not so much. That I'm going to need to warm up a little of the extra gravy, or at least I'll fake another gravy with some of the hopefully broth or stock we made from the bones. And I will need to heat up the dark meat and enjoy that as God intended at temperature. You kind of stole my thunder, John. What's new? Exactly. That's why you always get to go first in these things. That's why your name's on the show, John. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say both. And I wasn't going to delineate white meat versus dark meat, but I could see your point because the dark meat's a little gamier, it's a little fattier, and it's probably not as nice cold. But I love a cold turkey sandwich, and the white meat is my preference. But one of my favorite things to do with post-Thanksgiving turkey is warm that gravy up, throw a couple of slabs of the leftover turkey meat in there, and either put it on a sandwich or eat it with some leftovers. Man, do I love me some hot gravy dripping leftover turkey. Now, if you had a pick, is it the cold or the hot? 
Oh, it's the hot. Okay. Yeah, I prefer the hot because I love the gravy. Me too. And the gravy doesn't work on a cold sandwich. For me, almost all the entirety of a Thanksgiving meal is really just a gravy delivery system. So yes, I'm with you on that one. Okay. Well, we have one more and I'm not quite sure how to even phrase this, but mashed potatoes. Do we really even have to ask why? Hot or cold mashed potatoes? Yeah. Well, obviously hot, but I'm going to give just a small, tiny hint of a suggestion of an out for people that do actually eat leftover mashed potatoes cold. Okay, let's do it. And if we have any Peruvian fans in the audience, they already know where I'm going with this. I don't. There's a first course or a starter they serve at your finer Peruvian restaurants called a casa. That's right. It is a composed salad. They take cold mashed potatoes and they mix aji amarillo, which is one of the world's great chili peppers, this beautiful gold orange, semi-spicy. They mix it up. They do a layer of the cold potato and then either a layer of vegetable. Michelle actually had a beet casa the other night. They called it Casa Santa Rosa at a Peruvian restaurant we have here in town that's amazing, Inca, in case you're in the neighborhood. Or they do chicken, toss in a, in a nice spicy mayonnaise. Now, until I had that, until I experienced that a few years ago and did a video for it, I thought cold mashed potatoes were the you know domain of the psychopath, the like person that has stuff over their windows. <laughs> Not because of the murders. Not because of the cannibalism, but because they didn't want people seeing them eating cold mashed potatoes. Are you watching Dahmer on Netflix? I am not, and I'm not going to. This is not pairings, right? Pairing would not be appropriate. But anyway, I was one of these people that was like, cold mashed potatoes are a crime against nature, or maybe worse, crime against humanity. But then I had the cause. I'm like, okay, hold on. I prefer a hot mashed potato, especially in the Thanksgiving context. But if someone tells me, you know what, I don't mind a cold mashed potato, I layer some chicken over the top. I stir some chili pepper. You know, I got to give them a pass. There's some culinary precedent there. Definitely. And it was one of the like last cultural sort of things that I shot that I hadn't shot ever in my career. Like 20 years of shooting food, I had never shot Causas. And then all of a sudden I was in a Peruvian restaurant shooting one of these things. I was like, my God, this is beautiful. And then I had a chance to make them. And yes, I mean, the cold mashed potato is a little bit surprising at first, but man, is it delicious. And then similar to that, there's a um, restaurant around here that I used to get it. They called it an Armenian potato salad. Okay. How authentic it was, good question. But it was a, a potato salad, parsley, vinegar, lemon juice, all the usual suspects. But it was so finely crushed and smashed and mushed together. By the time they scooped it onto your whatever kebab plate, it was basically a scoop of mashed potato. Huh. I've had something like that. Yeah, it was ice cold, but it had the flavor profile of a potato salad. And I enjoyed that. So there are exceptions to all these kind of commandments and standard operating procedures. I sort of have a halfway measure. And this happens almost every year uh, after Thanksgiving, because I usually have three pounds of leftover mashed potatoes. I make potato croquettes with them. So I take them cold. I form them into balls. I put them in the egg wash and I roll them in breadcrumbs and fry them. So it's not quite cold, but it's using cold to make something new. Hold on. Are we foreshadowing? No, I'm not foreshadowing anything. I think you might have accidentally foreshadowed something I got coming up. That will hold the audience. If it has something to do with mashed potatoes and if they weren't already intrigued to know just how much mashed potato content we have, it's endless. We'll get to that. That's a segment coming up. You're going to want to hear this. Yes, we have much more mashed potato content to come. Well, that brings us to our favorite segment here on the Chef John podcast, Pairings, where we tell you what we're watching, what it makes us want to eat. 
So, John, what are you watching? Well, I just watched a fascinating crime. I want to say drama, but it was too slow to be a drama. (laughs) Is there something slower? Well, yeah, you know the slow burn crime dramas on Netflix? This was so, so slow. In fact, I could literally give every single thing that happened in the five episodes, and I would not spoil the ending. That's how slow this unfolded. Was it predictable? No, it was maddening. But anyway, I'm putting the uh, Norwegian horse in front of whatever they call carts in Norway. The show is called The Lorenskog Disappearance. Now, apparently that's a city in Norway, I'm guessing. What's funny is it's spelled Lorenskog, S-K-O-G. You would think it's pronounced Lorenskog or something similar to that, but it's not. If you listen to it in its native tongue, they're saying the name of that town, but it sounds nothing like Lorenskog. It's kind of like they don't pronounce the L, and then the R-E-N is kind of quick, and then Skog is more like school, but with no L, and they don't pronounce a G, but some people do. So anyway. Is there an entire critique on the title, or is there something? No, I'm going to move into the show soon. Oh, good. Okay. So Lauren Skog, Skrog, whatever you want to say, Disappearance, actually was based on a true story. A billionaire's wife in Norway, a pillar of society's billionaire businessman, his wife disappears. A ransom note shows up, and then she's never found. And it just captures the attention of this relatively small nation. And everybody and their uncle is now a private detective trying to figure out what happened to this dude's wife. So he's, of course, statistically speaking, the husband's always going to be the leading suspect. Yes. So that's the first and foremost suspect in the show. But then there's all kinds of other options come up, red herrings and so forth, as all good crime dramas have. Got to be a pickled red herring. A pickled red herring. Thank you very much. Do you know where that term red herring comes from? I don't remember. It's from fox hunting. The foxes would get so good at these fox hunts. It took like the fun out of it for the hunters. Like the fox would be dead before anyone pretended they did anything. So they used to throw red herrings here and there to throw the dogs off the scent to slow the hunt a little bit to give the fox like a couple of seconds, minutes chance to get out ahead of the dogs. So red herring is just something to distract someone. Anyway. You learn a lot here at the Chef John podcast, especially about herring. (laughs) So anyway, what's so interesting about this show is that the actual suspect, his wife, family members, they play a very small role in the actual show itself. It's not really based on them. It's based on these outside groups and how they perceive and deal with this crime. So the first episode is called The Investigators. So it's this crime through the perspective of the investigators on the case. The next one's called The Journalist, and that's the journalist covering it. And then it's The Lawyers. And then, I don't know, episode four is like The Journalist Part Two. And then part five is called The Informants. And I know this device has been used before where the same kind of scenes and action are lived out through the different points of view of different characters and so forth. But it's really done in an interesting way. And it's really kind of a bigger, more global look at how society perceives a crime and how people make up their minds based on a very small amount of evidence because of how the media is portraying it or how the lawyers are portraying it or how the police are going about framing it. So I thought it was really fascinating. And it's one of those shows I understand the five-star ratings and I understand the two-star ratings. I can see someone loving this and being like, dude, how'd you even make it through that? So if you like slow 
slow burn crime dramas on Netflix, which tend to be how the Scandinavian style, uh, they kind of invented the slow burn. You will like this. It's really slow. And, you know, an American crime drama, it's like, hey, I wonder if Jimmy No Neck did it. And then the phone will ring and it'll be in a form of like, oh, no, Jimmy was at the, the bar that night. Well, that scene, <laughs> which takes 20 seconds of an American show, that scene in this show would have been half the episode. <laughs> like they really... <laughs> Take their time getting the facts out. The winters are very, very long. In They're Norway. long. They don't have a lot to do. It's a slow show, but I thought a very interesting show. Now, I did make one tragic mistake, and I don't know if you've ever done this. You think a show, it's a limited series. There's no season two. This is it. You're in for this one and done. You think there's six episodes, but there's really only five. Oh. So as you're watching the fifth episode, no part of your brain is thinking, oh, this is the last episode my brain better work its way around this plot and we've got to tie some loose ends up here. Otherwise we're just going to be laying awake at night thinking what happened. And I made that fatal flaw. You have to know how many episodes. Cause if you think there's another one and there's not, and all of a sudden the credits roll and it's like next suggested show. And I'm like, hold on a second. What happened to episode six? Oh, no wonder they all made those sort of speeches during the show, all the main characters. <laughs> so we had to go back and we had to watch the last 20 minutes of the show again. With a different mindset, right? This is it. This is the end. And then it sort of made more sense. So anyway, a strange show, a sort of interesting show, a different take on a very familiar model of a show in a really interesting way. But mostly I picked it so I could make this following pairing. <laughs> reverse engineered. I reverse engineered this pairing. This in incredibly slow burn Norwegian show is going to be paired with Lefsa, Norwegian potato based pancakes, which if you're not familiar, I think might be the world's greatest crepe style pancake. These are just some potato used in the dough. So it really is more like a flour based, a starch based pancake. Isn't this the one that you need a special pan to make? You do, but you don't. All you got to do is watch Food Wishes where I refuse to use any special equipment. Yes, special pan, special paddle to flip yeah. them and roll them. I'm like, oh, that looks fun, but I'm not buying those on Amazon for one recipe. I'll figure this out. And if I can't figure out how to do something with regular kitchen equipment, I generally won't film it because like, what's the point? But rest assured, you can make this with zero extra equipment and you roll up these just amazing potato pancakes. You can just eat them as is, butter, jam, you know, you do whatever you want to do. But what a great snack to enjoy on your couch watching the Lawrence Krog disappearance. That's pretty great, John. I mean, I'm not a big like true crime or like slow burn kind of viewer, but it sounds interesting because I like that multiple perspectives sort of approach to storytelling. I think that's a very interesting way to look at any particular situation. So I would definitely give that a go. And the Lefsa is something I'm familiar with because, funny enough, the guy who played the grandfather in Team Marco, the film that I produced in 2018, his name is Tony. And Tony's Greek, plays an Italian in the movie, but was starting a company making Lefsa. I don't know what the connection is. I didn't really ask because we had just talked about maybe taking some pictures and helping him out with his website. We never got around to that because of the pandemic, but I know that he's really passionate about Lefsa and I've had them and they're just ridiculous and delicious. So I think I'm going to have to maybe look at your recipe on Food Wishes and make them up 
and sit down to the Lauren-Skaga-Rogan-Snoggan-Mogan disappearance and enjoy myself. Make a few lefts that disappear. Absolutely. Make them all disappear. It'll be the lefts of disappearance. (laughs) That's the sequel. John, my show is not going to be a surprise to you. So I have drifted back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and I have fallen in love with the She-Hulk. It's a fast burn. It's a fast burn. So the She-Hulk at first seems like a kind of ridiculous spinoff of the Hulk sort of family, whatever, however you want to say it. Technically, she is Bruce Banner's cousin who is infected with his blood during a car accident and wakes up a She-Hulk. Now, the interesting thing about the She-Hulk, it is an ancillary piece of her personality and her situation in her life. She happens to be an attorney. She's also a single woman in her 30s. These two factors come into play much, much more often than the complications of having become a She-Hulk. So it's very funny. It's very interesting in that looking at the perspective of a young professional woman trying to sort out her life. And now all of a sudden she has to deal with this alter ego where she turns into a seven foot beautiful green monster. So she's not married and she's in her thirties. Yes. That's a bigger issue than she turns into a giant green monster. Absolutely. I can see that. It's very funny. And like how Deadpool would break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. Right. She occasionally breaks the fourth wall and speaks to the audience. And so the young woman who plays Jennifer Walters, who happens to be the She-Hulk, is uh, Tatiana Maslany. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She's very talented and she's got a great wry sense of humor. And especially when she's breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience, it really resonates. And the storylines are funny and interesting. And it just gives you a little bit of insight as to what it must be like to be a young woman in today's culture and then have this interesting, powerful sort of side to herself that ultimately at times becomes a barrier which is a metaphor in and of itself. So it's a fascinating show. It's definitely fun. And if you are not quite into superhero stuff, I think you would still enjoy it because the messaging is very interesting and fun. So I highly recommend you check out She-Hulk. Now, what goes well with a She-Hulk? My favorite green food, pasta with broccoli. Now, I bring this up because it's something I've been making my whole life, and I've always made it one way. I would blanch the broccoli, then I would chop it up, then I would saute it, then I would boil the pasta in a separate pot, then I would make the mixture, throw it all together, and then serve it. Well, I started making it a little differently recently. So what I did was I chopped up the raw broccoli really fine put it in the pan with the garlic and the oil and the crushed red pepper and salt pepper and a little bit of chicken stock and cooked it until it was really soft. But rather than cook the pasta separately, I threw the pasta directly into the pan, made it a one pan meal. Now I can make the whole dish in like a half an hour. And I've been making it once a week, like my mom used to do when I was a kid. So pasta with broccoli, my favorite green food to go with the She-Hulk. That's my pairings this week, John. I love it. Very uh, color correct. I'm also a big fan of the broccoli pasta in all different shapes and sizes. Now, I assume you're using like a short pasta, like an orchetti, something like that. I made with elbow. I love that technique. People need to do that more often. Just using the short pasta, macaroni, whatever. Just cook it risotto style, right in the pan. Keep adding broth. 
till it hydrates and you're good to go. It's so good because the broccoli taste really gets into the pasta that way, where rather than just being on the pasta, it feels like it's in the pasta. It's really good. And then sometimes I'll do that and I'll use a little bit of a shortcut though. The other technique we just described is great, but you do have to watch, stir, maintain, yes. mm -hmm. add, adjust. And sometimes I can't deal. So what I'll do is I'll have my olive oil, my garlic, my whatever in one pan ready for the goods. And I'll actually put my chopped up just slightly bigger than the holes in my strainer broccoli. And I'll boil that with the pasta, drain that and put the pasta and the broccoli. That way the pasta sort of absorbed a little of that broccoli flavor. And if you cut it up nice and small, by the time you toss it all together, three minutes later, you put your pecorino in there. That broccoli is pretty flavorful. Yes, ideally it'd be better if you cooked from scratch in the actual, what's going to be the sauce. But for a shortcut method, I like that. And then regarding the She-Hulk. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think the She-Hulks now prefer to be called Shulks. Uh, I think they dropped the hyphen. Uh, I forget why I dozed off when they started the story. But anyway, I love that the bigger of the two issues is her age and marital status versus, oh my God, where do you buy t-shirts? I mean, isn't this a problem? You keep busting out the arms. There actually was a great episode about her clothing, which was terrific. So it's so much fun. It's a great show. Well, great pairing. Great show. Sounds good. I might even check it out, allegedly. And uh, yeah, I think it's a better pairing than mine. You could say I'm green with envy. That was a long way to go for that. Horrible, horrible joke. Uh, <laughs> And thus concludes the pairing segment with mashed potatoes. Foreshadowing. We are rolling along here, John, right into top five. And you know what we got for the leftover show, John? Leftovers? Top five leftovers. Nice. I would love to hear your top five leftovers, John. Well, my top five all-time favorite food leftovers. And by the way, to make my list, two things have to be true. They have to be great eaten as a leftover. Okay. Cold right out of the fridge within reason. And or they have to be able to be turned into something magnificent after the fact. You got to be a double threat, pure leftover, just eaten the next day. And I guess you heat it up fine. But unembellished, it has to be good unembellished. This is pure leftover. And then you should be able to make something incredible out of it. So with that in mind, here we go. Number five, spaghetti. Spaghetti house, spaghetti, just spaghetti. Name is spaghetti, spaghetti meatballs, spaghetti sausage, spaghetti marinara, just spaghetti in a sauce. It's cold. It's leftover. It's in your fridge. Okay. In fact, there's a great cookbook we used to have. I think we still do called spaghetti at midnight. Is there a more classic sort of sneak down to the fridge midnight snack than grabbing a fork, opening the fridge, taking a twirl or two, popping that in your mouth and then go back to bed. And by the way, you kids out there, don't do anything you hear on the podcast. Don't eat spaghetti at midnight, <laughs> but it is a classic cold midnight snack kind of guilty pleasure. So I do enjoy spaghetti in its cold leftover form, kind of like a very extra savory pasta salad. So it works on that level, but leftover spaghetti can be made into lots of things. I'll actually take a leftover spaghetti that had say an Italian style marinara sauce. The next day that could be paired with some leftover curry chicken and I'll make like a brand new noodle dish out of it. I do that all the time. When you have those things just in your fridge to you throw together, it makes a great dish. I don't know if you've ever beaten up some eggs and thrown it into a pan full of spaghetti and done like a spaghetti pie. Yep. And I even saw spaghetti donuts one time. I haven't made them yet, but people took leftover spaghetti, mixed it with some more cheese and olive oil, put it into a donut mold and bake them till they're crispy. 
And apparently that's a delicious thing. Made famous somewhere, I believe in Brooklyn, which sounds about right. That's about right. Which brings us to number four, roast chicken. I mean, who doesn't love to tear off a few pieces of cold roast chicken for leftovers? Of course, sandwich, of course, chicken salad. But then again, like the spaghetti, so many things you can make out of your roast chicken, chicken fried rice, chicken spring rolls, name it, chicken soup. So roast chicken is one of the most versatile leftovers of all time. I had to include it on my top five leftovers. Roast chicken, is there nothing you can't do? The answer is no. I just mixed leftover roast chicken with my pasta and broccoli. Very nice. What do you call it? Pasta and broccoli with roasted chicken. I would have called it she-hulled pasta with chicken. (laughs) Anyway, moving along. That brings us to number three, stale sourdough bread. Now, not something you generally grab a piece and eat as is. Although if it's real sourdough, you kind of can. Because sourdough bread really doesn't get stale and hard and dry and unpalatable. It will dry out and it will get kind of leathery. But you put a big old swipe of nice, high quality butter on there, a little sprinkle of salt. Still surprisingly delicious. Actually, two or three days later, kind of takes on a little bit of a different flavor profile. It doesn't keep fermenting and it's not really going bad, but it does get sort of a little more, I don't know, savory, a little more funky in a good way. So I will do leftover stale sourdough as is with some butter. But I mean, think of the amazing things you can make with leftover sourdough bread. The world's best French toast, of course is like a week old sourdough bread because it will soak in the maximum amount of batter, the egg, the milk. There's nothing worse in the world than people making French toast with fresh bread. They're already hydrated. What do you think is getting soaked in there? Not much. That is bread with egg on the outside of it is what that is. So bread pudding, savory stuffings, which is savory bread pudding. Croutons. Croutons. I mean, panzanella. I mean, I could go on for another hour. And I only need to know sourdough versus just any kind of stale bread is fine for a lot of these things. But sourdough, real sourdough done with an actual sourdough starter. All right. I, we get it. You you lived in San Francisco for 20 something yes. years. We get it. Real it's sourdough. It's amazing. If you never had bread that wasn't made with commercial yeast, <laughs> go find a real loaf of sourdough and let it sit in your kitchen for three days. You won't believe the difference. Damn sourdough snobs. That's right. Well, I only made it three. So, you know, I could have used it for number one. But when I get to number one, you'll understand why. But before that, number two. Corned beef, which is actually corned beef. For the first probably 17 years of my life, I called it corn beef because maybe I never saw it on a menu. I just ordered it by Audible. But anyway, corned beef, this is a very specific choice because yes, of course, a leftover piece of corned beef is going to make a nice sandwich. But what it really makes is the world's greatest breakfast, which is corned beef hash and egg. Chop it with some potatoes and some onions and you fry it in copious amounts of butter and or beef fat, and you put a couple of poached eggs on top or fried eggs if you're kinky. And that is one of the world's greatest breakfasts and one of the most mysterious of all the breakfasts. Because why is it so good? It shouldn't be that good. It's just corned beef. But there's some weird alchemy that happens. Is it the coriander? Is it the, I don't know. There's something in the spicing of a corned beef that once turned into a breakfast food with potatoes and cooked crispy, it just becomes something else. I don't care if it's homemade at some Michelin star restaurant or like army surplus generic can from the 1940s. Open that sucker up. I will enjoy that too. There's just something about the flavor profile of 
corned beef and potatoes with eggs that just works on so many levels. Which brings us to, speaking of potatoes, number one, mashed potatoes. News alert. <laughs> Stop the presses. <laughs> Chef John's gone rogue. No, mashed potatoes had to be my number one. I love mashed potatoes, as we've established on the show 40 to 55 times. And we've already established earlier in the show that there is a way to eat leftover cold mashed potatoes in the style of our Peruvian friends, the Casa. But leftover mashed potatoes, I mean, are we going to make potato pancakes? Are we going to make croquettes? Are we going to just heat them up and just eat them again like mashed potatoes? Are we going to do a lefsa? Can we make lefsa with them? Of course we can. Do you want to make some gnocchi? They're not going to be that good, but we can do that too because it already has the milk and the butter in there. But anyway, so many things you can make with leftover mashed potatoes, most of which I like almost as good, if not better than the actual mashed potato, which is saying something. I love mashed potatoes, but man, give me a nice plate of crusty, crispy potato pancakes made with mashed potatoes. And I am in starch heaven. I have a suggestion. Yes. I'm going to try this out on you. All right. Just listen for a second. Okay. For next year. Welcome to the Mashed Potato Podcast with Chef John. How's that? How you doing, Andrew? Welcome to the episode. And today we're going to talk. That's right. Mashed potatoes. It's not the dumbest idea you've ever had. I'll just put it that way. I'm full of them. You are full of it. I mean, full of them. (laughs) All right. So that was my top five. What do you got? Well, at number five, sautéed greens. I will explain. I love sautéed greens fresh. But I do a little bit of meal prep on Sundays because I like to keep things in the fridge because I'm a leftover sort of uh, tinkerer. And one of the things I love to have in the fridge is sauteed greens because I will reheat them and eat them the way they are. I will put them in an omelet. I will throw them in a soup. Having salty, garlicky, delicious you know, olive oil sauteed greens in your fridge are so versatile and they can go into everything and you're getting your vegetables. So at number four, pizza. What's better than leftover pizza? I put it in the toaster oven. I eat it cold. I just love pizza. I always buy more pizza than I need, and I keep it in my freezer. I usually buy like a big Sicilian pie. I have to eat gluten-free, so I get this one really good gluten-free pie. They do like a Detroit-style pie, and I eat a piece or two when I get it, but there's like 16 pieces in a Sicilian pie, and they're like two inches thick, and I wrap them up individually and keep them in the freezer, and it's like having frozen pizza and put it right in the toaster oven, and it's perfect. Now, of course, if I leave one or two in the fridge, I can eat those cold as well. So at number three, steak. Now, I think this fits into your category of it's really good leftover as is, or you can turn it into something great. Now, I have a tendency to turn most of my leftovers into some kind of breakfast, and I love doing a steak and eggs or a steak and egg omelet or add protein to a stir fry or add protein to a salad. You can pretty much add leftover steak to pretty much anything hot or cold. So when you got a really beautiful piece of meat and you can't finish it, take it home from the restaurant, put it in the fridge, and you can make any manner of things with leftover steak. It is the perfect protein for leftovers. With my number two, I'm going to go beef stew. Now, I don't know that this qualifies as a great leftover in your book. Hold on a second. What? Okay, go ahead. Thank you. But here's the thing about beef stew. Like a lot of slow-cooked one-pot meals, they're better the second day. So 
a beef stew in particular is just so excellent on the second day. And you have to eat it the same way. You got to warm it up and get it ready. But the flavors penetrate all the vegetables and the meats are a little bit softer, being cooked a little bit longer. I just love a beef stew leftover. It's almost better the next day. And I know we have lots of foods like that. But for me, it's always been the beef stew. I love a beef stew. And that will extend to a beef bourguignon or anything in the beef stew sort of category will do the trick leftover for me. Although it doesn't meet your criteria, I will add a criteria to that. Something that you make, but is better the next day. And number one... To be as predictable as your number one, John, leftover Thanksgiving turkey is number one. Oh my God, stop the presses. <laughs> stop the presses. Leftover Thanksgiving turkey on the Thanksgiving leftover episode of the Chef John podcast because turkey. We've regaled turkey. I don't think we're done yet. I think that's foreshadowing, John. We are not done yet with turkey because it is clearly that time of year. And what makes turkey leftover special is that you don't really make a whole turkey at any other time during the year. Now, some crazy psychotic people might, but I only really make a whole turkey once a year. So when you get those leftovers, you got to really savor them. Hey, do you want to come over to our Friendsgiving in July? No, I don't. I want to wait till Thanksgiving in November like real normal people do. I'll come over to your friend's giving if you just call it a party. If they're serving turkey, is that okay? It's fine. As long as they don't call it friend's giving or invite any of their friends. <laughs> All right, let's break this down. You got some interesting choices. Saute greens, yes, absolutely. I think saute greens are a magnificent leftover. My personal choice would be, of course, a quick beans and greens. Even if it's just a can of beans, you open maybe some extra olive oil, some extra garlic, grill oil or toast, a piece of bread, pour it over. And that to me is a beautiful dare I say, possibly vegetarian meal, or at the very least, meat-free. So I love your number five. Uh, number four, yes. Leftover pizza is, of course, a just iconic thing to eat. It didn't make my list because it's still just leftover pizza, except I've had a thing on my, what do I call it? My idea. Your vision board. My vision board, as the millennials call it. <laughs> and it's a savory bread pudding, a breakfast, almost like a strata where I'm going to layer leftover slices of pizza and then soak it with an egg custard and bake that into just an ooey, cheesy, beautiful casserole type thing. It'll basically be like a pizza flavored breakfast casserole. What do you think? I think if you layer it with ricotta cheese, yeah, you make it into almost like a lasagna. I was going to use ricotta, but that sounds good too. That's what I say to you. Do you get that a lot? Do you have to correct people in New York? Just walking down the street and like, excuse me, sir. Did you just say ricotta? I pronounce things the Italian way, the way I know how to pronounce them. And if you want to pronounce it differently, I don't really care. And his name is Italian. You think he would know. All right. So pizza, I'm down with. Steak, a great choice, great leftover. But I had a chuckle to myself as you were reading that. I'm imagining someone, they just came from the gas station. They filled up their car. It was... $86. And they're about to go home and open up a ramen soup from a package. And they flip on for some relaxation in the Chef John podcast. And there's Chef John's co-host. What the hell am I going to do with all this leftover steak? Maybe it'll be good in the salad. <laughs> Why did I order the 64-ounce ribeye? I should have known. What's uh, Peter Luger's? I should have known. We should have got the small steak. It was only $70 an ounce. I should have got a little. Anyway, I just had to check on myself. I'm trying to picture someone's like, wait a minute. There's such a thing as leftover steak. But anyway, 
That aside, assuming that you can swing a leftover steak, one of my favorite salads is just your classic phone-it-in Caesar with thinly shaved slices of steak in lieu of extra croutons. Just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, depending on the steak, I might even prefer certain steaks cold, sliced very thin the next day. Now, beef stew. I got a bone to pick with you on this one. Oh, no. Which is better than picking bones out of your beef stew. So beef stew, I think, is always better the next day, except for me, that's technically not even a leftover because every time I give instructions for beef stew, I'll tell people, make this the day before you want to serve it. So to me, what you're calling leftover, I'm calling the recipe. Do not serve a beef stew the day you make it. As you say, it is significantly better and more flavorful. Next day, two days, as long as it's not like you make it, oh, this it's done, the beef's tender, you throw it in a bowl. Still okay that way, but a totally just a different recipe the next day. So I love that part of your choice. But I will say leftover beef stew fried rice is a, a really good thing. And I think it's just feeling a little bit naughty putting potatoes into a fried rice. That's definitely naughty. It's almost like, well, you've had Thai curries that have had the potatoes, which they serve on the right. It's really good. So hopefully you don't have too much leftover beef stew, but just a couple cups with a nice big pan of freshly made rice cooked until crispy and crusty is a delicious, delicious thing that seems like it's actually a recipe from somewhere, but it's not, but it should be. And then Thanksgiving turkey needs no critique, embellishment, or anything else. Well, thank you, John. I do feel a little outmaneuvered on my beef stew, but you don't think you're going to get away without a critique from me, do you? Oh, I thought you did yours while I did my. Yeah, I kind of did. I look forward to more criticism. Go for it. There's not a lot of criticism here, John. I love food. All right, what do you got? I love this spaghetti thing. And I do think that you covered my thoughts on it in particular that, you know, you can pretty much make a spaghetti pie. You can eat it cold. You can eat it warm. It's a great versatile thing. The roast chicken thing, I also gave you a quick critique on, but I literally always have one in the fridge. And it is the ultimate versatile protein that you could use for everything. Terrific. I'm glad you got to panzanella salad with your stale sourdough bread because you did brush on it. And that was the thing that kept coming to my mind is a beautiful panzanella salad during tomato season. Wow, there's really not much better than that. And all I could think about during your number two with corned beef was Cat's Delicatessen. Now, of course, I just left the East Village. And had we done the show from New York this week instead of New Jersey, I would have had to run out to Cat's Delicatessen because now all I'm thinking about is a corned beef sandwich, and the leftovers from the next day. So thanks very much for that. And you've heard my thoughts on mashed potatoes. I don't think we need to go any further with that one. <laughs> Enough said. By the way, this list would have been better tomorrow. We have one segment left, and it is a peek behind the curtain. This is where John and I talk about our experiences shooting food, the challenges, the failures, and everything that came along with being food visual professionals. Is that where we are, John? That's one of the things we are. <laughs> People come up with different terms for it, but you know, we're fine with that. All right, that's fine. I would love for you to go first, John. Well, my peek behind the curtain is something that happens every year. It is quite a challenge. It is always perplexing. It's always a little disconcerting because... When you do what I do for a living every year, a couple of weeks ago, I was supposed to have come up with some incredibly creative Thanksgiving side dishes. Well, here's the problem. I don't like creative Thanksgiving side dishes. I want mashed potatoes, <laughs> stuffing, green bean casserole. So the five to six classic sides every family has, 
That's what I want. What I don't want is some pretentious, self-indulgent food blogger telling me I should do a Romanesco broccoli gratin layered with red onion confit and blah, blah, blah reduction. I'm sure that tastes good. And let's make that any other time of the year. But for Thanksgiving, I like the classics. So there I am stuck between this delicious rock and this succulent hard place. And I don't know where to go because I'd like to do new creative side dishes, which I used to. And then I kind of gave up and I'm like, you know what? I've done enough Thanksgiving side dishes. You guys go find something I've already done. I'm just going to keep eating the classics here. Because what I would do is I would try to film something and then either put it in the freezer or save it. And then we would do the Thanksgiving. And whenever I did one of these newfangled things, I always be like, that's good. But I, I really wish it was just one of the old classics that I filmed 12 years ago. Well, it's funny you say that, John, is because at the Times, a couple of years back, they focused the main coverage on side dishes and traditional turkey. And then they went crazy with the leftovers to do inventive sort of leftovers with the Thanksgiving leftovers, like create new dishes from the Thanksgiving leftovers, which I thought was very creative because I think they also had hit that wall where it's like, how outside the box do we have to get on a traditional holiday, right? So I feel you. So that's my peek behind the curtain challenge for holiday time, not wanting to, but sort of feeling responsible to come up with creative holiday side dishes. Just elevate the mashed potatoes, John. I'll elevate them with a fork up to my mouth. And that's all I would like to elevate. They're fine as is. Thank you very much. Well, my peek behind the curtain is one that people ask me quite often. And it's about photographing a Thanksgiving turkey. And this is something that I have a lot of experience doing. And when I was in the height of my food photography powers, we were shooting maybe six or seven turkeys for the holiday season, starting in late September and going right up to a couple of days before Thanksgiving, there was so much turkey around. I think I did get the tryptophan effect just because I ate so much of it. It was minuscule amounts, but I was microdosing tryptophan for at least four months. Trace amounts times 40 servings is a lot of tryptophan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was in a tryptophan-induced stupor for weeks on end. But anyway, the thing about shooting a Thanksgiving turkey is... First of all, when you're shooting turkeys, you have to have multiple turkeys going at the same time, because if the first one doesn't work, you need to have a second one. And because they take so long to cook, it's really important to have a backup turkey. So you have to have the A turkey and the B turkey, and sometimes the C turkey, depending on how much oven space you have. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you will slightly undercook a turkey to photograph it, because if you fully cook a turkey and get the skin perfect... What's going to happen is the turkey is going to start to release its juices and it's going to start to deflate. So if you want to have a really plump turkey, you have to basically take it out of the oven probably about an, an hour before it's ready and then maybe doctor the skin a little bit with a blowtorch just to kind of get the skin perfect. But a lot of times the skin is pretty close to perfect about an hour before it's ready and you can get it out, gloss it up, and make it beautiful. We don't do fake. We don't do shoe polish. We don't do crazy things like that. But you do need to take extra care to watch the skin because the skin is the most important part when you're photographing a turkey. So about an hour early, it's still undercooked. Get it out on the table, dress it, photograph it, put it back in the oven to finish cooking, then eat it because you don't want to throw away 25 pounds of turkey. So that's my peek behind the curtain. 
And some great tips there. I mean, I've never thought of it before, but it makes sense. So everyone out there, make sure you have a second and third turkey. In fact, <laughs> maybe don't eat steak for a while. Save up a little bit extra cash. And then you want to have that second and third turkey in case the first shots don't go. So that was a good tip. And after you said that, I kind of trailed off, but I'm sure the other stuff was very interesting as well. Yeah. Appreciate that. Appreciate your confidence and your, uh, your totally kidding. I was riveted. <laughs> I know I've told this before, but I think I've mentioned this in several podcasts. I did work for extremely brief time with a food photographer, or at least a photographer that did some food shoots. And I, yes, I witnessed up close and personal, the horror that is watching someone paint shoe polish. Oh, and I was like, Oh, so we're not going to eat this, right? Oh, so gross. And it is so weird. And then you see the pictures after and you're like, hmm, I would eat that. <laughs> so there's this total disconnect in your brain. You're like, wait, they're putting poisonous chemicals on that turkey. <laughs> and then, yeah. wow, that brochure looks really good. I would buy that turkey. So yes, yeah, necessary evil. But uh, I do take pity on you because as we've discussed in our previous peek behind the curtain, one of the issues I have is trying to enjoy things you've tasted 17 times oh man and by the time you finish a shoot for a day you're like all right uh let's call out for some pizza and that brings us to our next segment no wait we're out of segments and with that what did we learn today john <laughs> i would love to have learned something today so i could recap it to the audience no we actually did learn a few very 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 important things as i scroll through the notes from today's show trying to think of them. No, seriously, we learned that if you are a corn peeper or peeker, I don't know if we settled on a term. A peeper. Yeah. I like peeper better. A corn voyeur, a cornier. If you're one of these people like me, self-admitted, that does like to peek at the corn before we buy it, do yourself a favor, take a look around. If you got any possible New Yorkers staring daggers at you, maybe let them go and then loop back around to the corn. And if you do peel it back to take a very appropriate peek and someone like, I don't know, say for the sake of argument, a dead Perry is watching, just put those leaves back where you found them. So the dead Perry never knows you even looked. That's better. Yeah. That will make everyone feel better, I think. So that's one thing we learned. The second thing we learned, and who doesn't want to take beautiful pictures of our Thanksgiving turkeys? If you're going to memorialize that on Insta, try to get two or three extra turkeys, roast those in your spare oven, and then the spare oven oven you got in your garages. And then if things don't work out with the shoe polish on the first one, you whip out that second turkey and then you got a backup. And if that doesn't work, you got plan C. And you know why that's such a great idea? Because of this show, Leftovers. What better way to have leftover turkey than cook three of them? Which brings us to the last. And I think most important thing we learned, which all kidding aside, is actually a very useful culinary tip. Thank you, Andrew. Oh. You don't have to boil your macaroni first. If you're cooking a sauce that's juicy and is brothy, like olive oil with broccoli and some of the cooking liquid in it or a broth or a stock, get it going. As long as it's simmering, as long as it's boiling, throw your pasta in. And if it evaporates before the pasta is cooked, Andrew, what do we do? Add more. Add some more liquid. And if it cooks before the liquid evaporates, we call it a ragu and we just eat it like a soup. Nobody knows the difference. Nope. Used to tell my students at Culinary Academy, never put details on a catering menu. It should never say roasted Yukon gold potatoes or mashed Yukon. It should just say Yukon gold potatoes. 
because you might have meant to roast them, but then you overcooked them and you had to mash them. Now you can't call them smashed potatoes because now they know it's already on the menu. Never print details. And that is pretty much all we learned today. It's a lot. It is a lot. But you know what? We're a lot. It's true. We are extra. Not price-wise. The podcast is and will always be free. Unlike our competitors who charge crazy amounts to listen to their podcasts. Terrible. All right. I think we're done. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you joining us. Hit us up on social media. Leave us a comment. Maybe a five-star rating if everything goes according to plan. We would certainly appreciate it. Hope you had fun. And that's it. There's only one thing left to do. And that's uh, say goodnight, Andrew. Buonanotte, Andrea. That means goodnight, Andrew.